inside the recording studio. I am Jody Whitesides, and with me, as always, is Mr. Chris Hellstrom. How are you today, Chris? I'm doing good, Jody. I'm doing all right. How about yourself? I'm doing okay as well, or actually all right, as things can be. Although I am dreading that there might be some low rumble noises at some point during this podcast today. Well, yeah, there's. I know you're dealing with some construction issues there. I'm sure we will be okay. Yes. Let's jump right into it today, shall we? Dive on in. One of the things that you hear a lot when people are willing to get advice or they ask a certain question, mm. a an answer that you often hear is, there are no rules, man. Right. And while that could be technically true in some cases, it does absolutely nothing for the person that is asking the question, in my opinion. Yeah. I think it's a way of a too open-ended statement. It's one of my pet peeves, man. Well, so I thought we would we could talk about that a little bit today. All right. Sounds good. One of the things I immediately think of is when somebody tells them a person there is no rules. It's like, well, what are you going to do? Set them out on the Bonneville salt flats and let them go any which way they want to go? It's terrible advice. Yeah. I think so. No because rules. generally when somebody asks a question, it is not a matter of, well, sometimes it is, but it, it's generally not a matter of just taste. Right, It's something that somebody's genuinely curious about or they wouldn't ask the question. Sure. So when you say, there are no rules, hey, figure it out for yourself, buddy, basically. Right? <laughs> so, uh, it's kind of like, and, it's like giving you the middle finger. <laughs> it is, right? And I, I might be too sensitive to it here, but I remember when I started out learning about recording and mixing and things, had somebody given me that answer, I would have thought, well, that doesn't help me at all. You know, it, it's absolutely one of those questions. So I think a better reply when it comes to that, mm. because as we always say, it's always content dependent, depending on what situation you're in. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying there are no rules, you might need to elaborate on the question that's being asked or certainly in your answer by going, well, it really depends on what you're trying to go for, but generally you would do X, Y, and Z, depending right. on what the question is. Usually when so, I'm asked a question of that nature, I don't respond with there are no rules. I do actually try to figure out the context of what they're trying to do. Yeah. Which makes a good. big difference because then it becomes more about your experience. Mm -hmm. And you can hopefully point them in a direction based on experience. Yeah. Because it, it could be something as, let's say, oh, should I add distortion on my vocal? Eh, maybe. What are you trying to do? You know, are you recording a jazz quartet? Which the answer would probably be no, generally not, you know. <laughs> but if you're, yeah, I'm doing an industrial remix of a Slayer track, that's going to garner another, you know, answer. Sure. Right? So as a general rule, I think it, it's, a, it's a lazy argument. There are no rules. Okay. But it, it simply doesn't help. So have you had any experiences where, where, where people have asked you things like that and you've been tempted to say that? Or, no. No? No. I'm way too much of an asshole, depending on who you ask, that to give an answer of that nature. I've got opinions. I've got experience. I've got a plethora of roadmaps that I've used to do various projects. In fact, one of the most common questions I get is, how did you get that particular sound? 
I don't respond yeah. with there are no rules. I go and look up the session and look <laughs> at the session notes and figure out what exactly did I do. That's why I take notes. Yeah. I take notes right. so that I can go back and if I hear something that I've done and go, God damn, that was pretty fucking good. Or, oh God, that was shit. I can yeah. go back and look at the notes and determine what I did. But yeah. without writing down any notes or taking any notes, how the fuck would I know? Sometimes I yeah. listen to something and think, oh, well, I used this particular mic. And then I go look at the session like, no, I didn't. <laughs> so I have to correct <laughs> myself. But to go and say like, oh, there are no rules. No, I don't do that. In all fairness, it could be a question of, well, if somebody else, well, should I use an SSL board or should I use an API emulation mm -hmm. or any other console? Well, no, there are no rules. Just, it doesn't matter. But that is also... You know, it should be followed up. Well, well, what do you have? If you have an SSL emulation, let's say, don't worry about the API. Work with what you have, right? And get to know that. But when it comes to just matters of taste, that could be somewhat of a legitimate, a legitimate response. When you say, "Should I add compression before the EQ?" Yeah. Well, there are no rules there, but generally, if you're wanting to do this, you might want to do that, or if you're trying to do this, you might put it afterwards. You know what I mean? So there are, you know, there are follow-ups there that that we should be asking, and them being able to give a, an appropriate answer. Sure. Which do you do? Um, do you EQ first or do you compress first? <laughs> let me tell you why. There are no rules. No, um, generally, well, I will help do. Me. It doesn't, does it? No. What I generally do is I will do any sort of major corrective EQ, if needed, going into the compressor. Mm -hmm. Let's say that there is a, a track that has a massive low-end rumble. I want to get, get rid of that rumble before I hit the compressor. Sure. So that that doesn't trigger and just, or maybe just gets amplified in the, in the sound, right? Now I'm going to ask, why? Why? You just answered it, but I'm going to ask why again. Well, again, because I don't want that sound to hit the compressor and possibly get amplified at the other end of it, so to speak, the compressed signal. Right. So now I just like brought up the noise floor or what have you, a rumble or whatever it is. If it's something that is a nasal frequency, I don't want that to trigger the compressor more, so I will get rid of of any kind of sound like that mm -hmm. before it hits the compressor. Yeah, and then I sense. will generally do any sweetening if I have to after the compressor. If the track that I'm dealing with sounds great on its own, it just needs a little bit of compression, then I'll do that. I, I won't worry about EQ. So Well, now you're taking but, but it I a think, step far, but that, that gives somebody a solid answer as to why you might EQ before or after compression. Right. And well, it's that's not saying there are no rules. There are no rules. You can EQ wherever you please. Well, there's a reason why you might EQ before compression. There's a reason why you Correct. might EQ after compression. Right. You know, there are probably a million different answers by a million different engineers, but I would venture to say that a lot of them, well, whether they're realizing it or not, they're using that same approach. Right. At least as a starting point, I would think. Yeah. Which is why on some of the console emulations you can use, well, it's not the only reason, but you can you can place the compressor before or after the EQ. Right? So 
Well, some consoles are designed like that anyway in the hardware world. Right. But in some... So it's not just a plug-in actually, thing. Right. It is true that there are no rules, but there are certain sort of like norms that we sometimes tend to follow. So Sure. How do you deal with that, though? I mean, Which with part? the EQ, before the compressor, or EQ before or after the compressor? Same way you just mentioned. Okay. If there is something that I do not want triggering the compressor for right. whatever reason, if, whether it's corrective or what have you, mm. I will EQ it before the compressor. Right. And then if there's something Almost like that, there's a rule. Yeah, almost <laughs> like there's a rule. If there is yeah. something I don't want to have it triggering the compression or to have it trigger the compressor less or more for a particular reason, I'm going to EQ it prior to the compressor. Yeah. That's the only time I tend to EQ prior to compression, is if there's something right. that's triggering it in some way, shape, or form, either triggering it too hard or not giving it enough of a trigger for a particular frequency that I want happening in mm. the compression, then I do that prior to the compressor. And that's the, that's the answer. It's not the there yeah. are no rules answer. It's the answer of what do I want to have happen when the signal hits the compressor. Another topic that would be around this, this same area is I see quite a bit when people are using all these fantastic emulations of analog gear that we have now, mm -hmm. where a question might be, well, should I put my tape emulation before my channel strip, or should I put it afterwards? Yes. And here I think it can be a little bit more of a gray area because you can think of it in the way, well, if I'm mixing right now, I want to have the emulation of this coming from tape, let's mm -hmm. say. Right? So you might have it first. Sure. Or if you're tracking and you wanted to have the sound where it's actually hitting that tape going in, you might have it last in your chain if you've had any kind of processing going in. Yes. But here is one of those things where it's, well, again, what are you trying to do and what are you trying to accomplish and does it sound pleasing? Mm -hmm. You know, is it, do you need it there? Just because you have it in your plugin folder it doesn't mean that you have to use it just because you have it, right? So here, eh, yeah, there are no rules, but does it sound good and do you really need it? So I, I think a point that you and I have made several times during the podcast here is know the gear that you have and use it for a purpose when you know what you're going to get out of it. Yes. Does that sound like a, a big of a cop-out? But <laughs> well, that, that's, that's kind of like how I think about it. Sure. I get it. Anything to add to that? or? Mm, I'll, I'll tell you what. Let's take a quick yeah. break for our, a word from our sponsors, and then I'll have an answer for you when we get back. Sounds good. And we're back. All right. So to answer what you were just about to say, I'm going to give an example. Please do. I recently had somebody who had reached out to me about a new recording space where they just dropped a large, well, not largest amount of money, where they dropped over $12,000 in a single day buying gear, which, you know, that's nothing to sneeze at. That could be a fair amount of gear depending that's on what they buy. Right. So, and one of the things he happened to mention ha was the Mogami cable that they bought. He starts asking me about recording concepts and how I got a particular sound on a recording mm. to which is 
as I mentioned earlier in this episode, I had to go pull out the session to figure it out. And on that one particular session, I made a boo-boo in that I didn't write down the notes of the particular oh, microphone. No. It's like, ah, oh, damn it. However, I was able to pull up the presets of things that I did use in terms of plugins, and I was able to deduce the correct microphone that I used mm. based on what I know about the response of the microphone and the somewhat seemingly extreme curves that I used in the EQ that went in. And as okay. you mentioned it, it was a signal chain from the mic to the DAW in that it went from the mic into a preamp, into a channel strip, into some compression, tailored off by going to tape. Now okay. I record- so that's how you track the signal. That's how I track the signal. Mm. So I knew the chain of how I tracked the signal. And based on that, I was able to deduce, based on the artist, what microphone I used, even though I didn't write it down. However, gotcha. ever since I know that ever since that particular session, I know almost pretty much every session I've got, I've got the notes of exactly what was used. So I don't have that problem post that session. Questions started to arise. And of course, I started to say, hey, you know, this is how I do this. And this is the reason why I did what I did. And when you mentioned whether or not you're going to put tape at the end or the beginning of a chain, mm. well, I tend to do it on the way in as I'm tracking, because when you are tracking, you are going through all that gear prior to hitting the tape machine in the analog right. world. Mm -hmm. And I treat that much like I would if I was working on analog gear. Could I put the tape machine at the beginning? Sure. Would there be a point to that? No. So yeah. that's just not a hard, fast rule, but at the same time, it's a concept that comes from the analog world. You're not going to be able to start at the tape machine, generally speaking. Could you? Yeah. Would it complicate shit? You're damn right it would. <laughs> yeah. you got to go into the tape machine, out of the tape machine, into all the gear, and then back into the tape machine to actually track it. And my knowledge of tape machines, especially the Studer, says you can't do that. But maybe you could. You could probably well, you, figure out a way to do it if you went from one to Studer to another, if you had multiple Studers. Sure. But, but then again, what would be the point of doing that? All right, so you're, that you're tape saturation, your baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is that. Yes. Right? But, but that, that kind of brings up another point that I think we should discuss a little bit as well is what usually comes along with a statement like there are no rules is kind of goes hand in hand and goes, just use your ears. Yes. I, and you see that a lot in internet yeah. forums and you hear it quite a bit when you're right. chatting amongst friends. So just use your ears. Well- Again, that, that sounds like good advice, but that requires that you know what to listen for and yes. what you're going for. Mm -hmm. You know, Again, that thing where you're saying like you like to treat it like the analog world when you're tracking generally. So mm -hmm. you'll add tape on the way going in. Yes. Assuming you're doing that not because that's the way it was done in the analog world, but that it adds something to your track that you think is beneficial. So you're listening to that and you're hearing, yeah, this adds something to me. It might add a little subtle saturation or a little bit of compression because of that, mm -hmm. that you find pleasing. But with all of these tools, until we get to a point where we're comfortable in listening to what they are adding to the audio, I think it can be hard to not use them as subtly as is required sometimes. Does yep. that make sense? So yeah. you're, you're, you're slamming going into a tape because you hear the effect of it, 
right? Mm -hmm. So, oh, that sounds killer. Yeah, it might sound killer by itself as you're tracking it, but then you got to bring it into a track to mix, and then you might have overcooked it at this point. Use your ears, man. Yeah, but that also takes a little bit of practice to know what to listen for, if you will. Well, and so, when, usually when I come across the just use your ears line, it's what if your ears have no experience? Yeah. Well, that's that's the thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> if I don't your know ears don't know for. any better, you're not going to do any better. That's the reality yeah. of the situation. And one thing that was actually intimated to me about it, it, it became a question in this conversation that I was mentioning about where certain things were used in a chain. Yeah. Do you hear differently out of one ear than the other? And the answer to that to me is no. My ears are actually pretty well balanced. And I don't turn my head to hear something in order to be like, oh, well, am I hearing this high end correctly? Or is this low hitting right? I'm not going to turn my left ear or my right ear to the speakers in order to do that. But apparently some people do that. And I, there's nothing wrong with it. I just, I don't have that ingrained in my ability to hear. Now, that goes without saying, or it should go with the following situation. I just had my hearing tested last week. Mm-hmm. And in doing the hearing test, one, the doctor was kind of surprised. He's like, you notice that kind of hearing loss? I'm like, yeah. But two, both of my ears were almost identical on the EQ curve for what they could and couldn't hear. Well, that's, that's good. Which I, don't, I don't know how rare that is. I really don't because I didn't ask. However, I got to imagine that certain people may not hear things the same out of both ears due to maybe physical damage or auditory damage, yeah, who knows? Genetics or whatever, yeah. yeah. I can't, I can't so. answer that because my experience is not based on that. My experience is my ears hear everything in stereo and they are very, very darn close to each other <laughs> in terms that's, of the that, EQ curve. Like, yeah, it's, that's it's good. very minimal as to how far off they are. So it's like, to me, everything is, it's equal. Right. On that note, I'm going to go off on a tangent here, just completely non sequitur, but it made me think about this as you were telling that story. Mm -hmm. It has, well, he's come out and, and sort of talked about this, but in the past, he, he didn't. Paul Stanley from Kiss is deaf on one ear. As I found that out, you know, and he, he had talked about in his book, he talked about all the, the issues that this brought him. But to me, the thing that leapt out at me with that was that he has never heard anything in stereo. So he wouldn't know the difference. Right. It's but that's experience. Is, right. But but that is that's a weird thing to me. I mean, just the, the terror of that. It's like, oh my God. And and not being able to uh, for the longest time be able to tell where a sound is coming from. Like hmm. he couldn't tell if somebody was calling his name. He didn't know where to turn. Oh, that's interesting. Because apparently yeah. the design of your ears is supposed to help with that in terms of locating the sound. Now, being whether it was left or right, that might be a little harder, obviously, right. because he can't hear out of one side of his ears. But yeah. the directional value of your actual ears, that's how you're determining that. Well, maybe there's – yeah, I'm – I yeah, say it's because I'm not thing, an auditory anyway. specialist in terms of ears and the brain functionality, but I would think that it would be not as great as you're describing in terms right. of like being able it's, to tell a direction. 
Yeah. Now I'm taking a, a gigantic left-hand turn here with our podcast, but but that was something that just it triggered that for me when, when you were describing your experience there. But so, what's his um, rules when it comes to mixing? <laughs> right. But that's that's an interesting point. Sure. Because obviously he has produced albums, right? Mm -hmm. And he's you know it'd be hard to yeah. And I would argue imagine his accomplishments, right? If you had a problem with your ears where you're deaf in one ear, obviously you're going to want to turn your ear towards the stereo spectrum <laughs> to right. understand where things are when you're listening to them in a mix. Right. And, so. Yeah. And it's, you know, other artists as well is, you know, I, I remember one time I met um, Paul Gilbert mm. and he is also very vocal about his, his damaged lost, ears. Yes. He doesn't, yeah, he's here in loss and he, he very, very demonstratively turned towards me with one ear and almost like cupped it. And things. On a side note to that, be careful about your hearing, people, because once it's gone, it won't come back. Mm -hmm. um, but that that tangent aside here, use your ears. Okay. Well, what does that mean? That that again to me, it's like it's multi layered. Well, a lot of right? people what? will say that and back it up with saying, if it sounds good to you, it is good. And there is no argument to that. That's an opinion. Right. It's not a yeah. rule. It's an opinion. And some people might hear something that sounds very pleasing to them, but might be horribly grating to a vast majority of others. Right. An example for that where, you know, when we're talking about there are no rules and just use your ear, that type of thing. I have been in situations where guitar players like to put spatial effects like delay and reverb going into the front of their amps, mm. which to me is a giant no-no because now <laughs> if you're using any kind of gain on your amp, you're distorting your reverbs and delays. And to me, that is very much grating, just like you <laughs> like you said there. Right. There's one of those cases, well, where should I put my effects? Well, there are no rules, but generally you would put them in the effects loop so that, you know, you get the right order of effects, if you will. Could you do it the other way around? Sure. Knock yourself out. But you're creating something that is going to sound like it might not garner the results that you want. There you is know? always that. You can try right. it. Doesn't mean you'll get the results you want. Speaking from experience with another co-writer, mm -hmm. can we do this in this part of the song? Like, I want to do this. Uh, okay, is the answer that I will give. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I will fight back upon it because it's like there is no particular reason to even go down this road when doing something. Because based on experience, it's not going to work. But if the other person doesn't have that experience, sometimes you have to placate them by going through the experience again. And that has happened right. more than once in my past. Frustrating yeah. as it is, sometimes you just have to placate the other person just to show them. We can do that. It's a beautiful world. We can do just about anything, but this is the result that's going to happen from that. Right? And it might cost you more so, money in the <laughs> in the interim <laughs> having to go through it because if you're paying me to do this, it's you're yeah. supposedly but, but that, trusting my experience to guide you in the correct direction. Right, but but then you also have to be you know cool enough where you just. Don't want to go, hey, just trust me, it's a bad idea. No, mm -hmm. you show them. It's like, this is why I think it's a bad idea. What mm -hmm. do you think? You know? 
So there is that. So there are, you know, cases where, again, go back to the top of the point here. It's like, yeah, there are no rules, but things generally happen for a reason or put in order for uh, processing for a certain reason. Like, let's say, you know, can I record my drum kit in mono? Why not? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. The Beatles did it. If you're getting... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that, that's how everything used to be recorded in mono with one mic at one point, right? Yes. All at the same time even. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that it's advisable if you're going to try to go for a slick prog track and you want uh, every 15 of your toms to be able to be adjusted <laughs> in level and panning, then it's probably ill-advised. Can you do it? Yeah, there are no rules, buddy. Go ahead and knock yourself out, but you're probably not going to get the results that you, you want. You know, that, bringing that, that up like obvi- right yeah. now, you're talking about like tracking drums and just doing them in mono. I, I yeah. would love to have been a fly on the wall in the studio with somebody of, say, Neil Peart. Yeah. Or Terry Bozio. Mm-hmm. Because these guys are known for having ridiculously large drum setups. Did they mic every individual drum? And if so, the size of the fucking board would have had to yeah. have been enormous. You know, obviously they had to subgroup down on things, but I would be curious to know how they did that. Another question that I would have as a follow up to that is did they even set up? their sort of live kit when they were tracking. Because I'm betting that they didn't. They would only set up things that they absolutely needed. Who knows? Well, There's that, probably that, that goes fans those rules. out there. Yeah, I mean, that goes to yeah. the whole rules concept. It's like, what was the rule that they used in the studio compared to what he does yeah. live? Because you know they're not right. mic. I mean, they're micing a lot of stuff up, but it's probably not everything. They're probably going in a general sense of like, well, here's all these rototoms. We'll mic the, the area. Who knows? Right. Right. But yeah. that that's not a rule. That's like this is what we found to have worked. Because we right. tried this and it, and it, it didn't work. So <laughs> it's not a place of there are no rules. You can have a drum kit from here to tomorrow. That's fine. But how are you going to deal with it when you're recording? That's a different monster. It is. And then that becomes one of, of a practical nature as well. Right. So Right. So yeah, yeah, we we'd like to mic up every one of your fifty kit pieces, but we're stuck with 25 microphones, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> we only have 25. How many are we going to actually use? So there's that. So, I mean, it, it, we're bringing up some pretty absurd examples here where why you necessarily wouldn't do things and why you would do things. But, but it takes absurd the- examples to show why having to say a phrase of there are no rules, just use your ears – is absurd. Yeah. It is absurd. You got to have absurd yeah. examples to show the absurdity of that particular nature. But on that topic, where things are not used necessarily as intended, that create results that end up being something new and cool sounding. Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing that kind of leaps to mind was the Genesis track, I think, or was it just Phil Collin? I, I'm not sure. But when they ended up sending the drums Phil Collins. through the talkback compressor, that kind yeah. of thing. That was like, Phil Collins. Oh, that sounds that was Phil Collins, right? Yeah. But that was like, that sounds amazing. But right? it, was so an, that, that, it was a mistake in the moment. That's how they came up with it. It wasn't like they were trying to do it. It was a mistake in the moment. 
Right. Again, there are no rules. That ended up working. Cool. Mm-hmm. That was a pl- pleasing result, interesting result. The same thing with shares people that they used auto-tune on Believe, right? Sure. Where it created this effect and then, you know, became known as like the T-Pain effect and all that and became massively used in, in a certain way that it wasn't necessarily intended to be used, but it created something cool. So that's where, you know, I would personally draw the lines of, well, are you getting a result that you think only sounds interesting or are you just trying to do it the right way and, and get a predictable result? So there is that experimentation factor that you can always go down. But when people are asking for straight up advice how to do something, I think we need to be a little bit more understanding of what it is that they're asking and not so general with our replies or advice. I I would concur with that statement. Nice. All right. I like like it. With that, let's move on to our Friday finds. Chris, what have you got for us today? I picked up a new plugin. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, from Plugin Alliance, and I picked up their adapter, A-D-P-T-R, A-B metric. It is essentially just a reference plugin for when you're mixing, Mm -hmm. when you can go in between different tracks, just A and B them to your current track. Now, that is a workflow that I haven't necessarily done a whole lot of in the past, but I'm currently mixing an album for an artist where tracks have been recorded not only in different studios but at different times over a fairly long amount of time. Mm -hmm. So I'm finding that it's really helping me get more of a uh, cohesive balance of instruments uh, across the board for the whole album. So I am actually... I'm kind of a fan of this plugin now because it it, it, uh, it makes that that a being between a reference mix a whole lot easier. Um, Sweet. It's it's really really deep. So just just read the manual. But but that's my that's my Friday find the adapter AB from Plugin Alliance. And what about you, sir? What do you got for us? Something interesting for people looking to soundproof their environment, be it studio mm-hmm. or home or office, whatever it might be. There is a couple of guys out of Sweden, your home country, Woohoo! from, I believe it's Malmo University. Yeah. If I said that correctly, I'm not sure I said that correctly. That was pretty darn close. All yeah. right. They have designed a screw, a new type of screw that you use when you're building walls, and they call it a sound-absorbing screw. How hmm. ironic. <laughs> but the yes. difference of this screw is it comes in two parts and has a spring installed in it. And essentially the first part of the screw goes into whatever you're drilling into the wall. And then the second part of the screw actually is what holds the drywall or the second thing that you're putting onto the wall in place. And then when as you screw it down, it creates a miniature little gap between the walls or between the wow. surfaces that you're putting together. So you don't so have to no use vi- glue. Minimum vi- 
Okay. Mm-hmm. And there's no vibration there or less vibration? I'm Much guessing? less. It, apparently, the screw reduces things somewhere on the order of 9 dB or more in doing this, wow. just on the screw itself. And, of course, when you put these miniature little spaces between things and they're not touching, it reduces the amount of sympathetic vibration going through the wall. Bonus is, word point there. Nicely yes. done, Mr. Whiteside. <laughs> it, goes, it, it lowers the sympathetic vibrations in the walls, so it reduces the amount of volume that you hear between walls, which is what everybody wants when you want to soundproof stuff. So there's all kinds of glues and hat channels. I could imagine that you could do this where you might do it, this, these special screws, into hat channel instead of just soundboard. Then you get the bigger space and then you do on the hat channel, you do another one of the screws and then you get the smaller space in between the hat channel and the the next level of wall. You could really do some major soundproofing in that regard. So it's the sound absorbing screw. The website is acoustos, A-K-O-U-S-T-O-S dot S-E. They do have a U.S. patent, but... Mm -hmm. I don't know if you can get them in America or anywhere else outside outside of Sweden yet. So that's my pick of the week because I'm interested in these things. Interesting. Yes. Interesting. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. With that, while we've got your attention, we'd like you to go to our website and sign up for our email list at InsideTheRecordingStudio.com. You'll get weekly reminders about our Tuesday tips and the weekly episodes that just happened, so it makes sure that you don't miss any future episodes of the podcast. In addition to that, it gets you the ability to possibly win stuff when we're giving stuff away. Who doesn't want to win something from being on an email list, right? In addition right. to that, we also give you some plug-in presets that Chris and I use all the time in our sessions from Universal Audio and Late Audio or Slate Digital Audio. Plus, if you want to send us an email at goldstar, G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R, at insidetherecordingstudio.com with the word no rules, that's actually a phrase, no rules, you'll get something cool back in your inbox. If you have a topic of suggestion for Chris and I to pontificate upon in a future episode, you can hit us up on our contact page on the website and we'll put it into consideration. See you next week. Have a good one, Jody.